Hey guys, and welcome back to the Female Fitness Formula podcast. I have a guest with me today, Aiden Muir. Did I say that right? That is correct. Amazing. Aiden is from Ideal Nutrition. So he is a registered dietitian and he actually has, you have like a practice out of Brisbane, right? And have a number of dietitians working with you? Yeah, so we're a team of six now and we do online and in-person. We're probably 80% online, but we do have the in-person location that a lot of people come see us at. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And you still work one-on-one with clients. Yeah, I'm still enjoying that. Um, A lot of dietitians don't see clients one-on-one for like Mm. a large portion of their career. Usually they'll start doing that and then go into other things. So I'm still blessed that I'm still enjoying that. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I like a, a bit of a story about about me, and then and absolutely, this podcast is about you. But I actually was, I studied my first bachelor was a bachelor of nutrition, and then I sort of thought about, oh, maybe I want to get into my master of dietetics. But when I kind of looked into what does the what does the career of a dietitian actually look like, I find that, and and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, mm-hmm. but I find that they either go into clinical practice where they're in the hospitals and being in intensive care, we worked closely with the dietitians there, or they branch out into entrepreneurship and they sort of have like an online presence, but they're not really working with clients clinically one-on-one. What 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 are your thoughts? Yeah, it is a bit, it's a bit like that. So like the the hospital route is the route that a lot of people take. And then if people do go seeing clients, there's a few outcomes. One is that you don't get a lot of clients and that could therefore mean you just want to make money through other career paths. Another one could be that it's just not what you think it was going to be. Um, For example, I remember when I was in placement, a supervisor said to me something along the lines of, what do you do when a client doesn't get good results? And in my head, my general response was like, I think I'm going to be pretty good at what I do. (laughs) And like, what happens when you get the first client who you can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink? Like, what happens when that happens? Like, how do you respond to that, patients, et cetera? Some people just aren't, don't want to do that, I guess. Um, And then another thing is, what if you're just like really incredible at what you do, you build a business really quickly, and then you have a bunch of staff working for you now, just like a manager or something like that. So it's like, I think those are reasons why people won't be seeing clients forever usually. Yeah, for sure. And and I resonate with that in, in terms of the more that my business has scaled, the more it's so easy to have to take yourself away from that yeah. client interaction because you're working on the business stuff. So it's really impressive that you're still, you know, in the trenches with the more. And, you know, one of the things that I, I really... Uh, respect in you, Aiden, is that an ideal nutrition is your evidence-based approach to everything. And I even watch you on some of your Q&As and, you know, the world of nutrition is crazy because I feel like the people with the loudest voices get seen the most. Yeah. The ones that are like, you know, it's veganism or nothing or it's carnivore and it's, it's nothing. But I find with evidence-based practitioners, you particularly can identify them because there's nuance in the way that they answer things. And it's very, it's not black and white, it's all shades of gray. And I see that with your uh, your responses. And, and sometimes it's like, oh, he's very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, reasonable, practical. Yeah. <laughs> it can't be that simple. So you have this really awesome way of being able to make really complex topics pretty simple because most of the time that's the important stuff, right? So what kind of clients do you see most uh, within your practice or what kind of clients do you work mostly one-on-one with? So it is a 
bit of a mix. And once again, this is just following my own interests. Um, so I'm based inside a powerlifting gym. I love powerlifting. I've done a bit of it myself. Um, I do work with quite a lot of powerlifters, but the the split is honestly 50-50, where it's like 50% of the clients I see are athletes. And I'd say a large portion of those are strength athletes to be specific. And then about 30% would be split between like endurance athletes and team sports. And mm -hmm. then the other 50% is like, I don't want to say everything else, but it's like general population, people just looking to lose weight, um, irritable bowel syndrome, diabetes, PCOS, endometriosis, like mm. just like general health conditions as well. Just people looking to improve their health, I should say. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So kind of jack of all trades, but your passion is in in that sort of competitive yeah like that i guess like to be clear it's like my passion is in all of those things like yeah. i i'm also clear about what i'm not passionate about like i'm not passionate about eating disorders i'm not passionate about like nutrition for people under the age of say 16 like there's there's areas i'm not passionate about but i also have a wide interest like i i would i love seeing people who are in the competitive space but mm -hmm. i just wouldn't want that to be everything i do as well i like to mm -hmm. keep it a bit varied yeah, awesome. Well, today I wanted to chat to you about uh, PCOS specifically, because I feel that this is, you know, when we think about PCOS, the prevalence of it is certainly increasing. And maybe that's just because we have better diagnostic criteria for it than we've had in the past, whereas previously it was, and it probably still is to a degree, dismissed by a lot of general practitioners and kind of just putting this basket of you're a woman you have these problems deal with it um and so i think that we're getting better at understanding what pco pcos is but there's also there's so much we can do to a degree in terms of nutritional and lifestyle management for women with pcos to improve outcomes so I wanted to chat to you about that. And the first question that I have for you, Aiden, and it's it's kind of a to help people to understand, you know, that uh, PCOS and endometriosis isn't the same thing, right? Yeah, separate. Yeah. So your approaches to PCOS, you know, a woman that comes to you with PCOS and a woman that comes to you with endometriosis would be very different. Yeah, very different. Like there would be like maybe some overlap with some stuff, but it's like pretty separate mm -hmm. conditions. Yeah, yeah. All right. So in terms of let's focus mostly on PCOS. What are the things that you mostly work with women who come to you with a diagnosis of PCOS and want to improve, I guess, maybe through weight loss or just their, their general lifestyle, like cardiovascular markers, things like that? Yeah, so there's, there's heaps we can do. And I guess I guess it's just we're going to choose a place that we're starting here. So I think the boring answer, but the most simple answer that I'd start with is I would start by focusing on fat loss unless they were presenting with lean PCOS and they were so lean that it wouldn't really make sense for us to want to go leaner. Mm. Um, and then that kind of leads into the next obvious question of are the principles of fat loss different with PCOS? Mm. No. That's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, the short answer is no. Like, yeah. there's, there's a very nuanced, long answer, but the short answer is yeah. probably, probably no. Um, yeah. you, you would have seen me post about this and something I've gone a little bit back and forth over the years, but like, um, definitely from the like insulin resistance side of things, where it's pretty clear that you don't need to go low carb or like if, if two versions of you, had the exact same calorie intake, the exact same protein intake, but one went low carb, one went low fat, 
they would still lose the same amount of body fat with PCOS or insulin resistance. So we know that. The the one that I've gone back and forth a little bit on, I don't really have a strong opinion on this right now, is um, the impact on how PCOS may or may not make weight loss harder, um, specifically, because there's a few variables here, but a specific variable is vasometabolic, right? Um, so there are a few studies um, looking at vasometabolic rate. There was one, I don't want to name names, but there was there's someone famous in the fitness space who has done a talk on PCOS and he pointed to a study where vasometabolic rate dropped by between like about 24 and 40%. 40% was definitely the, the largest that was seen in the study. It might've been 17 to 40%. Um, mm. And that kind of swayed me a little bit by looking at that, that study. And in that study, something that was very interesting to me is that the people who were the most insulin resistant were the ones who had the largest decrease in their vasometabolic rate. Um, for context, vasometabolic rate is only a portion of our total daily energy expenditure. So you could say that a 40% drop, which was the most extreme that was seen in the study, could be the equivalent of, say, like a 20% drop in total daily energy expenditure. So mm. on the one hand, if that was to be the case, I would have a bunch of empathy because I'm like, that's it's a, it's a decent hurdle to overcome should you choose to try and overcome that. Um, it's not an insurmountable hurdle, but it is a decent hurdle. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, there's about three other studies that are looking at basometabolic rate and PCOS that couldn't find any mm. difference. And that's why I go back and forth because I'm like, on the one hand, I'm like, this study exists. On the other hand, the other three don't show this. It's surprising that we don't have more research than this, but I look at it from an open-minded lens of either there is zero difference in basometabolic rate or there is as much as, say, a 40% decrease under the most extreme kind of circumstances. And with both of those pieces of information, there's two next outcomes that I come to. One is that we can really just play with the cards that we're dealt. It still comes back to the same principles of, okay, we've got to create a calorie deficit if we're looking to get leaner. But the second one, which I was just thinking of as I was talking, I've obviously thought about this a lot, but it's like if the insulin resistance was the component that was linked with the basometabolic rate, right? theoretically anything we do that improves insulin resistance should mm. improve metabolic rate alongside that and we would then for we would therefore see supplements or medications like metformin or supplements that improve insulin resistance dramatically making weight loss easier with pcos which we mm. aren't seeing in the research mm, yeah that's really interesting because i i do remember seeing that that study which showed up to that 40 percent decrease in basal metabolic rate but then looking as you said into the other research it's not being replicated in some other you know um, research but I'd, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on this because i can only speak from an anecdotal experience yeah. where i do notice that some women not all with pcos and it's kind of like a is it a chicken or the egg situation is it the pcos or is it at ad, an adherence piece but i do notice that some do have to, oh, I hate using the word, to, um, you know, get to a bit of a suckier place with mm. in terms of lower calories or you have to push energy expenditure a little bit higher. And I'd, I'd be really keen to hear what has your experience been and have you anecdotally seen that in some of your clients you've worked with? Yeah, anecdotally I've seen that. Um, it is definitely something I say. I also have mixed thoughts on that. Like we, we both probably look at it a little bit being like, how, how far do we trust anecdotal experience? Like mm -hmm. I trust enough in my own practice. I'm like, I will do different things based on that. Right. Um, 
but I have some mixed thoughts on it being like, we can't fully trust it. Um, I, I passed on my own similar thoughts to yourself there to a colleague of mine who works with heaps of people with PCOS as well. And he, he almost brushed it off a little bit through the lens of being like one other factor that I think is that he said that he thinks that is a bit overlooked is he had a better way of saying this, but like a bit of a defeatist mindset of being mm. like, imagine having a condition where you're told it is harder for you to lose weight. Mm. Would that then play any role in any of the decisions you make or any of the behaviors you take? Um, I, I'm a big believer in, in a lot of areas in life. This is not getting too woo-woo, but like yeah. believing that if you believe you're going to succeed, it's easier to succeed. Um, yeah. I like alcohol, not more than the average person, but I like it. But say I was in a calorie deficit and I believe that if I don't drink alcohol at this event on the weekend, it is going to directly translate towards me making progress towards getting as late as I want. I'm mm. more likely to say no to that alcohol at that event than if... I think it has no correlation. I'm like, if I drink there, if I don't drink there, it doesn't actually matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting hearing him say that because I'm like, I don't, I don't know exactly where I stand on all of this, but I'm like, it's an interesting point to factor in amongst the anecdotal side of things as well. Mm. And that really comes back to the art of coaching because if you make your client feel as if though they are already doomed before they've started, then it may impact the way that they progress throughout that, that process is what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And that's where it's interesting with that 40% kind of like decrease in basal metabolic rate. If that was if that was something that was relevant, it's like, do I tell people? I tell people because I tell people that it exists. I kind of word it the way I've worded it here, being like, maybe it's as much as this, maybe it's none at all. Um, because I'm an honest person just sharing my thoughts or whatever. But I'm like, does that help someone? It the only way I view that really helping somebody is that say that it does exist and that is something that is happening is it's useful to know how something makes weight loss harder or fat loss harder. Because with PCO, if it's if it's not that, if it's not the changing in energy expenditure, because we know there's two sides of the equation, it would have to be changes in energy intake as yeah. well. And it's like, is there changes in appetite associated with that? And if we simple, simplify it down to changes in intake and changes in energy expenditure, we know the goal, we know what we need to overcome and it's not some mystical, okay, this forces us to gain weight kind of thing. Like using a different example, but like antidepressants. Some people will be like, oh, yep. my doctor told me antidepressants cause me to weight, gain weight. Where it's like, well, it has to either increase appetite or cravings for certain foods or whatever, or decrease energy expenditure for that to happen. If we know that, at least we know the barrier that needs to be overcome. Mm, yeah, so something can indirectly potentially influence either being in a deficit or in a surplus, but just the, uh, the the act of taking an antidepressant doesn't mean that you'll gain weight. You have to be in a surplus to... Yeah, spot on. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. yeah. Now, one thing that you mentioned was, you know, going back to that insulin resistance. And I want to talk more about that. So in PCOS, you know, why do we see that insulin resistance in women with PCOS? And how does improving that improve other things like say cardiovascular disease or metabolic disease and things like that how would you answer the the part about how like why why do people with pcos have higher insulin resistance like how how would you personally answer that oh it, it is a good question and it's 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 kind of you can't really answer it specifically like, well, PCOS causes insulin resistance, but it's kind of like a, a triage of things, right? So it's yeah. like when you look at, when you combine 
hyperandrogenism and you combine potentially being overweight and having more fat, then that can kind of lead to that insulin resistance when you when you are overweight. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on in PCOS because of that hyperandrogenism, it kind of works together, doesn't it? Like when you've got that insulin resistance, it can worsen that hyperandrogenism. And yeah. that hyperandrogenism causes so many things um, with women with PCOS. So if you focus on the insulin resistance. It helps everything. Yeah. It helps everything. It's kind of like a snowball effect. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and that that's the thing. I eh? see so like I've I've written so much content about PCOS for like like blog content, podcast stuff, Instagram. And it's so interesting, like when you go down every rabbit hole about any supplement that improves insulin resistance or anything like that, any approach that improves insulin resistance. And you look at the the measurements where they're measuring hair growth or hair loss or whether they're measuring fertility, um, if they're measuring the regularity of menstrual cycle, it's almost like anything that improves insulin resistance mm. improves those things. I'd hate to simplify down to one thing because obviously this is really complex. There's so many things more than that. But it's really interesting to see that it's like you improve insulin sensitivity and a lot of other stuff comes along for the ride as well. Yep, yeah, for sure. And And your approach, if someone does have insulin resistance, is there this magic formula that you use or is it just really simple things like yeah so we we will we'll talk the more interesting stuff about supplements and stuff like that but we'll start with the basic stuff right so like yeah. as I was, as i was focusing on to start off with getting leaner yes that helps insulin resistance that's that's a huge one building muscle also helps insulin resistance as well that's yeah. a completely separate topic i don't want to get too far into but like you you will see people talking about people with pcos need to do low intensity exercise to decrease cortisol etc where it's like if they if if muscle is built it will help insulin resistance it will help insulin sensitivity um different topic i'll focus on nutrition but we've um with the other components the next components like talking a little bit about carbohydrates specifically so a few things one the research is pretty positive on decreasing carbohydrates helping very nuanced topic i'll come back to that one thing that the research is quite positive on is lowering the glycemic index and this is really interesting to me because in like very few other fields of nutrition do i talk about the glycemic index if i get an average person looks to lose weight i do not touch on the glycemic index at all um somebody with diabetes i do touch on it but i also talk about it in the context of glycemic load matters more which is basically the amount of carbohydrates you have times by the glycemic index so it means if something's high gi and high carb it will spike blood glucose levels if something was high GI, but you had a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of it, then it doesn't matter. Um, mm. But with the with the glycemic index in PCOS, it seems to matter, but it's still probably likely that same glycemic load thing. But touching on another point that I find interesting is that there is a lot of people who talk about going low carb with PCOS. Mm. And if you look at what the research shows what they've really done a lot of in the research is have taken people from really high carbohydrate diets, what most people in the fitness community would talk, call really high carb diets as a percentage, like we're talking 50 to 65% of calories coming from carbohydrates, and they've taken them down to like 40 to 45%. And they have shown really impressive improvements in pretty much everything, right? If somebody is saying, hey, let's go low carb. Mm. It's 45% low carb. <laughs> 45% is not low carb. Like they're talking, maybe they're talking ketogenic. Maybe they're talking less than 50 grams of carbs per day. Maybe they're talking less than 20% of calories coming from carbs, which like 
depending on how people define that, some people would not define that as low carb, other people would define it as low carb, but like, it's like, where do we draw the line? Like, somebody who's talking about low carb is definitely talking at least below like 20% of calories coming from carbs, or they might have a cutoff for like 80 grams of carbs or 100. It's like, the research is done on a lot higher. Like from memory, we might have one or two studies that have been done on like quite low carbohydrate diets and PCOS. And there's some major flaws in them. Like I can't recall exactly, but they might not have like a control group or anything like that. It's like, well, how mm -hmm. are we comparing, et cetera. Um, bit of proof of concept. But it's interesting to think that this is a very common recommendation to go low carb, but it's not really been studied. Who's to say that taking those people from 45% down to 35%, they wouldn't get even further improvements? Mm -hmm. I don't have the answer to that. Like I... I could make some speculations and be like, maybe, but like one thing that's for sure is we know that if we take the average person and take them down a little bit, we're seeing pretty great improvements and we can still focus on all the other positive benefits of a healthy diet, including a decent amount of carbohydrates as well. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it is that fine line because when we look at, you know, carbohydrates as a, an entire food group, when we start removing that, we also start removing other things like fiber. And mm -hmm. we know that fiber has, like so much benefits in terms of cardiovascular health and even, you know, um, lifespan, you know, the higher, and there's some really great research around the more fiber that you consume, the, the lesson there is yeah. Yeah, in mortality. So that, that's getting into something else, but it's, yeah, it, it's interesting because a lot of my clients do believe like, Oh, I, you know, I was told that I can't eat carbohydrates and therefore they, it comes back to that, well, what's the overarching principle? The overarching principle is weight management, um, improving that insulin resistance, which has a snowball effect on that hyperandrogenism and all of the other things that we see. And if you told me not to eat carbohydrates, I can guarantee that my adherence would be around 1% because I am just not going to consume a diet that doesn't have carbohydrates in it. So it comes back that adherence piece how do you tell someone who really enjoys having carbohydrates and not i'm not talking about processed carbohydrates but you know just fruit vegetables whole grain yeah. all these things that are great for us it it makes it more challenging and it creates more of a barrier for them to improve the the symptoms that they're experiencing would you agree yeah, I think so. And that's that's also why I think it's interesting to to look at it as a, like that 45% showing there's immense improvements. There's different different kind of topic in a way, but like there's a study that was done where 600 participants, relatively large, not on PCOS, just general, general people who were looking to lose weight, 300 went into a low fat group, 300 went into a low carb group, and they were told to go as low as they could sustainably maintain. I think they had to start off with like less than 20 grams of carbs or something like that to start off with. Yeah. Um, and less than 20 grams of fat, which is obscenely low. But like they started with that for a certain amount of weeks and then they went as low as you can sustainably maintain for the next 12 months. And they they did like 24-hour recalls and stuff like that throughout the process where they also measured like ketones to see if they're in ketosis. And at the end of the study, zero people were in ketosis. So that's 300 people who were told to go as low as they could sustainably maintain. And on average, their food diaries, like I think like two people out of 300 were, would have been considered like what we consider to be a ketogenic diet based on what they were saying. But based mm -hmm. on like their ketones, it was they weren't in ketosis. Um, that's not a ketosis study. That's not a, a low carb study. But it's interesting to be like, if you got 300 people and told them to go as low as they could sustainably mm -hmm. maintain after a lead-in period of being exceptionally low, at 12 months, nobody was doing that. Um, so when you factor in all those benefits of fiber and everything else like that, it's like it's good to know that 
not only is something as high, so to speak, as 45% has shown these huge improvements, but like at least it gives the option if mm. somebody would like to have carbs and from that sustainability side of things too. Yeah, for sure. And if we move on to a separate macronutrient being that of protein, how do you, you know, what are your recommendations for women with PCOS in terms of protein intake? And is there any differing opinions or uh, advice that you give to your clients compared to, say, someone who doesn't have PCOS? Honestly, I give very similar recommendations um, as I would for anybody trying to, assuming people are trying to improve muscle growth and everything like that, I'd give pretty similar recommendations. And the reason why I'd be pushing for that muscle growth or at least maintenance while in a deficit is coming back to that insulin resistance point of view. Um, some people could criticize that by being like, well, protein can break down to glucose and increase insulin just the same. But that then comes back to that key point that I went about earlier being like, we see that that doesn't impact fat loss, assuming calories are appropriate. Mm, yeah. It's really interesting, though, because if you talk about glucose spikes, it's like, but that's a symptom of a problem that needs to be, you know. That problem is even bigger in diabetes and PCOS <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's not so much the insulin spikes, it's the, 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 the insulin resistance that needs to be improved. Yeah. But I have seen some research, and to be honest, I haven't looked or deep dived deep into this for a while, but shows that some women with PCOS may have impaired oxidation of um, protein in overnight fasts. So there's there's some research, and look, I, I don't think that there's meta-analyses on this confirming that this could be potentially helpful, but maybe a bolus of protein just prior to bed might be a little bit helpful for women who may have that that impaired protein oxidization. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea. Something that's really interesting is that if you look at the research on having protein before bed in general, just as an isolated field, like you just forget mm. everything else you know about nutrition, you just look at that. If that was all the research you saw, you'd see that people seem to gain more muscle when they do that. Um, we know everything else about our nutrition. We know like total protein intake matters most. Distribution mm. across the day is, is relatively important. You don't need to have, distribute so much that you eat protein the second you wake up and then the second before you go to bed. Yeah. But it is interesting that when you look at it, be like, hey, if you encourage people to have protein like an hour before bed, on average, they seem to gain a bit more muscle. Is that because they're increasing total protein intake? Is that because of the distribution component and it just works a bit better than what the average person is doing? It's hard to say, but I'm like, I don't think that's a bad idea regardless, yeah. let alone with the PCOS stuff too. Yeah, yeah for sure um and you you touched before on lean pcos could you elaborate a little bit on on what it, what is lean pcos so basically it is the exact same thing it's just occurring in somebody who is quite lean so they're getting symptoms and everything like that they'd meet that same criteria of having um you've got to have two of the three following so that's um elevated androgen so say high testosterone any irregular menstrual cycle um, or cysts on your ovaries. So you've got to have two of those three things. And it could, like lean PCOS is just somebody who has two of those three things. Um, what would differ in the management? Honestly, nothing apart from the fact that you probably shouldn't pursue getting leaner. And mm -hmm. this, this is where it gets interesting with diagnosis as well. Um, you would obviously be familiar with HA, hypothalamic amenorrhea, where it's yeah. like somebody can be lean and they've lost their period due to being in a state of low energy availability or just being super, super lean in general. Mm. And it's like somebody could also get a misdiagnosis in that case. That's yeah. actually not often the case in lean PCOS, but it's just another thought. Um, but yeah, so the reason I was saying that was just because 
you wouldn't, if you're already quite lean, pursuing getting leaner could be more detrimental than beneficial for your health at that stage. So you'd be focusing on all the other stuff. We've only really touched on the carbohydrate stuff so far, but there's heaps of other stuff we'd look at too. Yeah, for sure. And and you do bring up an interesting point there because, you know, hypothalamic amenorrhea or REDS is we're getting better at noticing it, but there are so many women, especially, you know, athletes who are being misdiagnosed with either endometriosis or PCOS when the fact is they have REDS or they have yeah. And then you tell them, yeah, cool, well, insulin resistance, PCOS, we're going to have calories. And you just, you're creating an, a, a more of a gap in that energy deficiency when what they need is they need to that lessen that energy gap, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it can be a bit of a mess at times, yes. <laughs> How fun are women? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. All right, so um, we'll, we'll sort of start wrapping it up, uh, Aiden, but one of the things that I, I want to touch on is, and very briefly because this could be an entire, entire yeah. other podcast, but what are the main nutritional strategies that you would recommend to a client who has PCOS compared to that who has endometriosis? So a lot of stuff I've talked about, the other stuff that I'll add in for PCOS is there is some supplements that I'd add in. Um, the most common one that has been massively popularized over the last few years in this specific world, it's very unknown outside of this world, but in this specific world is inositol. Um, some could read it as inositol, but inositol is how to pronounce it. Um, two to four grams of that per day just seems to help everything honestly it seems to help every symptom of PCOS pretty much um it improves insulin sensitivity lowers testosterone helps with fertility um very consistent research the mechanism even makes a bit of sense whereas like people with PCOS reportedly have lower levels of inositol in their bodies already it's almost like there's a deficiency and this is kind of covering that gap a little bit um but then other supplements in relation to like the insulin sensitivity like we have magnesium maybe some omega-3s zinc might help a little bit cinnamon um sometimes vitamin d sometimes chromium if somebody's like low in vitamin d addressing that would help um i could talk about each of them individually and one, one thing i don't do is like chuck everything at somebody like i wouldn't give somebody like I, I've got a list of like 10 supplements. I've got it on a blog post on my website just titled Nutrition PCOS. If you type that in, it'll come up. Um, it's like, there's like 10 supplements there. I wouldn't give somebody 10 because yeah. it's, it's I, I don't think there's a cumulative effect of adding all of them. I think if you add a couple, you get the majority of the benefits. Um, and also tell how you pronounce it, whichever yeah. we pronounce it. I've seen awesome results in my clients when they've started supplementing with it. But the thing that, that I've noticed with it is that it takes time. It's not something where you take yeah. it for a week and all of your symptoms improve. It's kind of like taking that, you know, um, you said two to four grams per day, um, whether yeah. you do that in one dose or you split it across two doses across a day, two grams, two grams. It's kind of like, you know, a couple of months. And I kind of see it around that four, fifth, six mark period that's where they start to see the improvements. And some women have even seen a return of their cycle with it. It's yeah. that's actually a pretty awesome supplement. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like touching on that from two perspectives, one, every, pretty much everyone who listens to this, I assume is going to be familiar with creatine for people who lift weights, right? So like, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't tell you if I'm on creatine or off creatine. It's not like this magical thing, but like the research is so clear that almost everybody who takes it is getting a small benefit from it. So I'm like, I don't know, I'm going to take it because sometimes I have a good session, sometimes I have a bad session. And maybe I just have more good sessions if I was taking creatine and I don't pin it down to that. And 
Inositol is like that for PCOS, but better. Where it's like, if you were two months into it and you didn't notice a benefit, it's like, maybe you are getting something, maybe you're not. But then it's like, what if you do get a cycle back? What if you do? Like, it's more likely that that benefit is occurring due to the inositol and may or may not have happened if you weren't taking it. Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yep. All right. So endometriosis. Endo. So, yeah, yeah. there's <laughs> heaps and heaps of stuff. Um I'll start with the non non controversial stuff very briefly. So endometriosis and irritable bowel syndrome, there's quite a bit of overlap where a large percentage of people, I believe it's about, I, I won't butcher it, but a large percentage of people who have endo are experiencing irritable bowel syndrome symptoms, um, mm -hmm. diarrhea, constipation, that kind of thing. And the stuff we do from a nutrition perspective definitely helps with that. Does it resolve it every single time? No, but at least we can move the needle. There's one study that just drives home that point really clearly. Um, if you get a group of people with endo who have IBS symptoms and you put them all on a low FODMAP diet, around 70% of them report significant improvements in symptoms. Does that mean I put everybody with endo on a low FODMAP diet? Of course it doesn't, no. But it's just like, I'm just, basically I'm, I'm cherry picking one example to be like, this one intervention from a nutrition perspective helped 70-ish percent of people in this one case. So it's like, I, I would do a lot of the similar stuff I would do for somebody with IBS generally and aim to get some benefit there with the understanding that if I get somebody with IBS generally, I might be able to solve symptoms pretty much 100%, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases. Um, maybe some menstrual cycle-related stuff might mess up those statistics a little bit, but mm. Generally, I can get a near 100% success. Whereas with endo, like maybe the odds of getting that perfect outcome are significantly lower because there's just some stuff we can't do. Um, but I'd start with that. Other, other general stuff. So there's a few things we can kind of work around. Like we can work around like little things like potentially reducing estrogen, potentially doing some anti-inflammatory stuff, potentially doing some antioxidant stuff. Um, this is where it gets a little bit, I don't want to say controversial, but it's like there's two different sides of the fence where it's like one group of people will say there is nothing you can do ever pretty much from a nutrition perspective to manage endo. The other group of people would hear anti-inflammatory and be like, let's just like take turmeric and curcumin and it'll solve everything. Um, the answer is somewhere in the middle where it's like there's like we can reduce the growth of lesions and stuff like that. Like we can do a little bit there. We can potentially reduce inflammation a little bit. That's another complex topic as well. Um, there is evidence for certain things. Um, I don't know where I start with that because there's so many things. Like, for example, if somebody has low vitamin D, addressing their vitamin D probably helps to reduce endo pain. There's research on antioxidant supplements like high doses of vitamin C and vitamin E showing reductions in pain once again um, and improved menstrual cycle regularity. But do I jump to supplements or do I go like, do we start with an antioxidant-rich diet? Like I'd probably start with an antioxidant-rich mm -hmm. diet. Um, other stuff, the other stuff is where it gets weirder like there's I'll, I'll bring up i'll bring up a weird one i i your listeners i'm sure are very switched on people and they can interpret this um pretty well so like i i don't recommend the average person goes gluten-free right um mm -hmm. unless they are celiac or unless they have an intolerance which this is another debatable concept whereas whether it's gluten that's the issue or fructans which is another fodmap complex topic right but i don't recommend the average person goes gluten-free there are two studies on endometriosis with decent sample sizes. Um, one study from 2017 where they got people to go gluten-free for 12 months 
and 75% of people reported reductions in pain and just improvements in pretty much all of their symptoms. Mm. And they redid that study again, because they're like, it's a pretty weird finding, that's pretty positive. And they did it for three months in this this repeated study to give a bit of a, a second go at it. And on average, participants reported a 50% reduction in pain. Mm. But is that because a lot of gluten-containing foods are also high FODMAP foods? Yeah, and th this is the thing, and this is why I, I preface this by being like, "Hey, I think the people listening to this switch on. I think they can they can jump to their own conclusions." Yeah. Like, I don't I don't think I don't want people listening to this being like, "Oh, gluten free is the solution to endo." <laughs> That's not yeah, what I'm saying. Sure, like, sure. I, I think it's exactly what you just said. Like, I think the the fact that gluten is in wheat, fructans are in wheat. If we went gluten-free, we we're dropping fructans. I just said that whole thing earlier about how the low FODMAP diet, which would include going low low fructan, 70% improvements in IBS. Like 70% of people notice a significant improvement in their IBS. If you notice a significant improvement in your IBS, would that also overlap with a reduction in pain? Maybe. If you went gluten-free, are you changing a bunch of other stuff? Do you now have to eat less packaged foods? Do you now have to cook more at home? Like, do you now, like there's so many variables that go on with that. One of the reasons why I bring that study up two is well one downside of that that research is it wasn't placebo controlled like people knew what they were doing and that's always going to be a variable but the other reason why i do bring that up is from an open-minded perspective of being like it's pretty clear evidence that dietary changes can play a role in, yeah in endo like that's not saying hey taking out gluten is the solution or even yeah. taking out gluten in in isolation is actually doing anything it's it's literally just being like changing diet is playing a role. Therefore, if somebody says changing a diet does nothing ever, that's yeah. a lie. <laughs> but it's also not like this magical thing where it's like, let's add this supplement, it solves everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good point because, you know, I'm I'm all for the evidence and I'm I'm always guided by that. But women, particularly with endo, uh, they experience a lot of pain and their quality of life can be so drastically reduced. You know, some women can't even work because of their symptoms are so bad and it does, it, it, it changes their quality of life. So even if there are things where we potentially don't have the quote-unquote yeah. evidence, it's like if that's improving the symptoms for that person, what does it fucking matter? Like, <laughs> What does it matter? As long as we're getting that improvement in that person's quality of life, reducing that pain, whatever the reason is, and hopefully we'll know a little bit more about why, but why not try it? And, and I think going back to what you said, just telling women with endo that there is nothing that they can do to help their symptoms, I don't think is a helpful place to, to take them or to even start with them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm on the same boat or in the same page as you, just in terms of like, I'm much more flexible with with the evidence that we've got available due to the circumstances, due to the pain that people are being being like, if if something has a forty percent chance of working and there's no downside of doing it, and somebody's in quite high levels of pain, it's like let's yeah. try it. Like let's yeah. let's try it. Let's be okay with the fact that we might be wrong here, but let's try it and see if this helps. Yeah, for sure. It's like whether it's gluten, fructans, whatever. <laughs> Really yeah exactly yeah yeah amazing well thank you so much for your time i really appreciate you fitting me in with between all of your clients um i know that you're probably gonna have a, go off and have a bit more of a busy day so where can people find you your team and anything else that you kind of wanted to add in there so the easiest place will be my instagram so 
Aiden, spelled A-I-D-A-N, underscore the underscore dietitian. So Instagram, that's where I'm most active. We have a podcast, so the Ideal Nutrition podcast, and our website is Ideal Nutrition as well. So any of those places would be good. Yeah, and for coaches specifically, I actually really recommend your blogs. They're awesome. They're very detailed. So whoever does them, I don't know, if you, do you do them? Do you no, do I, them? I do. Yeah, so I do that. Yeah, so nice. it, it is... Um, <laughs> the most boring part of my job but i put so much effort into it um yeah each blog post takes a lot of time mm. and i think about it a lot being like do i need to do this like in terms of i don't know this is this is probably a separate like off-air conversation but in terms of like what's the most efficient way to make money like it's like for me it's it's obviously seeing clients and yeah. what's the most efficient way to bring in clients it's posting on instagram and the podcast stuff would be great as well right the blog doesn't really bring in that many clients but what I think it really, really does is it gives me a long form content to really choose my words carefully. Like on a, on a podcast, I can say stuff that's wrong and everything like that. But on a blog, it's like if I say something that's wrong, firstly, I can edit it. I can go back and change it. But I yeah. can think about it really clearly. And secondly, it forces me to keep learning and laying stuff out in a clear, clear format. Like mm -hmm. using that example with the gluten thing I talked about with endometriosis, like when I've written that, I'm like, I can write every caveat in the world so yeah. that if somebody is a smart switch on coach, they can read it and they can see how I've come to the conclusion of saying what I've said, basically. So I think if anyone's going to go deep, like the blog is the place. If anyone's going to pick up stuff really quickly, Instagram is the place. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, and I've, I always print off my papers and highlight yeah. them because I just can't, I just can't read them. But yeah, um, really appreciate your time. And yeah, guys, just go and check out Ideal Nutrition. They are awesome. And have a good day, Aiden. Thank you so much for having me.